0: The last time we encountered American author John Dos Passos in this podcast, he was in northern France visiting towns and villages near the front line. Dos Passos continued his journeys, and 1921 and 22, found him in the Middle East, observing the collapse of the Ottoman Empire. For the Ottoman Empire completely disintegrated after the war, suffering far greater indignities than Germany and Austria-Hungary. The empire had been in bad shape for a long time and was routinely referred to as the sick man of Europe in Western newspapers. Its economy was a wreck, its government corrupt, and its people unhappy. By the end of the Great War, the situation had grown immeasurably worse. The Ottomans had joined the wrong side, allying with Germany and Austria-Hungary. By spring 1919, the knives were out and the carving up of the empire had begun. The desires of the people actually living in the former empire were irrelevant. By 1920, the Turks were left with only a sliver of their former territory and were under attack from all sides. But nothing unites a nation like an invasion. As their enemies closed in, the Turks rallied their strength and began fighting back. Here's how Dos Passos described what happened next. Quote, A grubby little war was going on in Asia Minor. "'One port on the Sea of Marmara was crowded to the water line "'with desperate Greeks, men, women, and children "'whose villages had been burned by the Turks. "'Another was stuffed with Turks in the same plight. "'The irony was that the Greeks and Turks "'and their pathetic women and crying children "'all looked so much alike, "'it would have taken a linguistics expert to tell them apart. "'Dos Passos was speaking out of bitterness and rage,' And I don't take his dismissal of the suffering of the Greeks and the Turks at face value. I think he is pointing out the fact that all suffering is the same, no matter who experiences it. At the end, these were just people, tired and scared, with nowhere to go. The diplomats and prime ministers and foreign secretaries who had engineered this situation would never see the women and children crying along the Sea of Marmara. This is the tragedy of the collapse of the Ottoman Empire. To the outsiders pulling the strings, this was just another grubby little war. This is the year that was 1919. Welcome to the podcast where we look at history one year at a time. I'm your host, Elizabeth Lunday, and I really appreciate that you're listening. I want to apologize for the unexpected break last week. I had one of those colds that sneaks up on you, drags you into an alley, beats you up, and steals your wallet. There was simply no way to get this episode in proper shape and time. My apologies. We are continuing our discussion of colonies and independence movements this week, focusing this time on the former Ottoman Empire. And whoo, is this a tricky one. Remember when I said the Russian Revolution was insanely complicated? Oh, my sweet summer child, I was so young and innocent then. I have decided to simplify things mostly by sort of kind of ignoring chronology Okay, not ignoring it, but I'm not going to follow it strictly because if I did, I would be jumping back and forth and you would have no idea what was going on. Instead, I'm going to tell you what happened region by region, stopping every now and then at key historical points. I highly encourage you to look at a map. I've included several on the website at www.theyearthatwaspodcast.com, but even just a glance at a modern map of Turkey in the Middle East will help. So, okay, everybody ready? Let's do this. Let's start immediately before the war. As I said, Ottoman Empire, sick man of Europe. What was left of the Ottoman Empire was nevertheless a large block of territory. Its heart was Anatolia, the chunk of land that basically comprises modern-day Turkey. The empire then stretched south along what is today Syria, Lebanon, Iraq, Jordan, and Israel, and down the Arabian Peninsula, what is today Saudi Arabia. Ottoman control diminished with distance from Istanbul. The Ottomans had only nominal power in the Arabian Peninsula. On the ground, various tribal leaders actually ruled. The most important of these for our purposes was Hussein ibn Ali al-Hashimi. As the Sharif of Mecca, he was the steward of the holy cities of Mecca and Medina. Ottoman rulers had to contend with both ethnic and religious divisions within the empire. The Ottomans were ethnic Turks, but outside of Anatolia, most inhabitants of the empire were Arabs. Other smaller groups were scattered through the territory. We will discuss two of them, the Armenians and the Kurds, in more detail. Most of the empire was Muslim. In fact, the sultan played an important religious role within Islam. The sultan was the leader of the caliphate, making him, in theory at least, the religious and political leader of the entire global Muslim community. The caliphate had little actual power, but it served as a representative for Islam to the rest of the world. The caliphate mattered. The empire was dominated by Sunni Muslims, but included a sizable Shiite minority. Other religions were also represented, among them Syrian and Armenian Christians, and a small population of Jews in Palestine. All of these divisions contributed to long-standing conflicts within the empire. The Ottoman Empire really had no business joining the Great War and might have found a way to stay out of it if Britain hadn't pulled the sort of high-handed stunt that was typical of its relations with what it considered inferior nations. In the early teens, the Ottomans were eager to modernize their navy, and so they ordered two battleships from British shipbuilders. The first of these ships was completed just as war was declared in August 1914. So the Royal Navy seized it, just took it, and broke up the other ship, still under construction, for scrap. I suppose you can't expect the British to go around handing over brand new battleships to potential enemies at the start of a war, but the Ottomans were furious at what seemed like common theft. Meanwhile, through sheer coincidence, Germany had two battleships of its own in pretty serious trouble. The ships had been caught in the Mediterranean at the start of the war, and the British Navy stood between them and the Straits of Gibraltar. The only German option was to try to outrun the British and make it to the Dardanelles, the narrow waterway between the Mediterranean and the Black Sea that was under Ottoman control. They managed to do so by the skin of their teeth. It's a fun story. I'll put a link on the website. German diplomats immediately recognized the opportunity. They said to the Ottomans, the mean and nasty British stole two of your ships. Behold, here are two German ships to take their place. Our gift to you. The British insult, followed by German generosity, had an enormous effect on public opinion, and the Ottomans soon joined the war on the side of the Central Powers. I am, of course, simplifying a complicated diplomatic situation, but this is the heart of the story. There's no time to go into the details of the Great War in the Ottoman Empire, but I do want to talk about four particular stages of the war that had long-term consequences. Three involved Britain and one Russia. First, Gallipoli. By late 1914, it was already clear to the British that the Western Front was going to be a long slog. Some creative thinkers, predominant among them the First Lord of the British Admiralty, the young and ambitious Winston Churchill you may have heard of him, decided to attack the central powers from another direction. They would hit them from the southeast. The plan was to take out the Ottomans, join up with the Russians against the Austro-Hungarians, and eventually assault Germany from the east. Easy peasy, and one might add, lemon squeezy. The first step in this campaign would be to conquer the Dardanelles, which I mentioned just a bit ago is the narrow waterway, or strait, that connects the Mediterranean with the Black Sea. With the Dardanelles under British control, access to the region would be infinitely easier. So Churchill organized a combined Navy and Army operation to attack at Gallipoli, a point overlooking the entrance to the strait. The attack began in the spring of 1915. It was a complete cluster mess. I'm trying to keep my clean rating on Apple podcasts. A sort of epidemic of poor decision making swept the entire British military. And despite the genuinely heroic efforts of the men on the ground, most of them soldiers from Australia and New Zealand, the Ottoman troops held them off. Finally, in December 1915, the Allies withdrew. Total casualties, more than 300,000. The Ottomans had some 250,000 casualties of their own, but it was nevertheless an enormous victory. The conflict created a hero out of the Ottoman commander, Lieutenant Colonel Mustafa Kemal, who was critical to halting the initial invasion. Gallipoli also nearly, but not quite, ended Winston Churchill's career. That was wartime event number one. Wartime event number two, the British were also fighting the Ottomans in Mesopotamia. Mesopotamia is basically today's Iraq. The region was considered significant for two reasons. First, it was a path to India. And as we discussed in our last episode, British foreign policy mandated protecting India at all costs. Second, it had oil. The British were the first of the great powers to recognize that oil would be even more important than coal in the 20th century. The British landed at Basra on the Persian Gulf and gradually moved north, eventually capturing Baghdad in March 1917. You will be glad to hear that when they marched into Baghdad, the commander of the British forces announced, Our armies do not come into your cities and lands as conquerors or enemies, but as liberators. Bet you never heard that one before. By the end of the war, the British controlled all of Mesopotamia. Now, wartime event number three, the Arab Revolt. The British had long cultivated relationships with Arab leaders, and there were a handful of British officers, diplomats, and spies wandering around the Middle East. Among them was a dashing young man named T.E. Lawrence, of whom you may have heard. Lawrence was a young archaeologist who had fallen in love with the desert and Arabian culture. He was romantic and idealistic and charismatic. Through Lawrence and other agents, the British encouraged Hussein bin Ali, Sharif of Mecca, to rebel against the Ottomans in exchange for British support for full Arab independence after the war. Lawrence teamed up with Hussein's son, the equally dashing Prince Faisal, to lead bands of Bedouins against the Ottomans. In a series of daring attacks and desert marches, they pushed north, conquering territory from the Arabian Peninsula all the way to Syria. When the war ended, all of that land was under British or British-backed Arab control. Finally, wartime event number four— While the British were busy in the south of the empire, Russia was pressuring the Ottomans from the northeast in the Caucasus. The Caucasus is a mountainous region between the Black Sea and the Caspian Sea, and this is really where a map is useful. Today, it is the home of Georgia, Armenia, and Azerbaijan. In 1914, it was divided between Russia and Turkey. That corner of the world has long been a contentious one, difficult to rule, and crowded with competing ethnic groups and religions. We will be focusing on two groups, the Armenians and the Kurds, and starting with the Armenians. Armenians lived in both Russian and Ottoman territory, and they are Christians. In 1915, Russian troops began moving south through the Caucasus into northeastern Turkey through the Armenian homeland. The enraged Ottomans came to believe that the Armenians were supporting the Russians. This is widely contested, as is Everything I'm about to say next, I am about to utter the words Armenian genocide and thereby possibly rouse the wrath of Turkish nationalists, although I suspect as a lowly podcaster, I am beneath their notice. But if the trolls come after me, it's been fun knowing you all. Ottoman troops embarked on a campaign of brutal ethnic cleansing with the goal of removing all Armenians from their traditional homeland. Ottomans beat, raped, and slaughtered Armenians. Those who survived the initial raids on their villages were driven into mountains and deserts without food or shelter. Armenian sources put the number killed as high as 1.5 million. This is disputed. All of this is disputed, but when it was over, about half of the Armenian population of Anatolia was just gone. Among those persecuting the Armenians were the Kurds. The Kurds have been in the news a lot lately here as I record this in November of 2019. This is perhaps an unfair way to introduce them, but I will attempt to make up for it because the Kurds are undoubtedly more sinned against than sinning. The Kurds are an ethnic group that have long occupied a region that stretches from southeastern Anatolia into today's Syria, Iraq, and Iran. The Kurds are often described as a fierce and warlike people, although that's the sort of description I find extremely slippery. Certainly, the Kurds have always been intent on preserving their culture and way of life, which was centered around tribal loyalties thus busy minding their own business, the Kurds only began to emphasize their broader identity as Kurds in the late 19th century. They were therefore late to the nationalist game, and in the period we're discussing, there were few nationalist organizations or leaders promoting the Kurdish cause. The exact nature of the cause was also ill-defined. In general, the Kurds wanted fair legal treatment, education in their own language, control of local administration, that sort of thing. Beyond that, there was no consensus on major points. Did they want an independent Kurdistan, for example, or autonomy within another country? The Kurds were also hampered by the fact most people outside of their corner of the planet had never heard of them. To jump ahead a bit, you'll recall the leaders of the Paris Peace Conference had trouble coping with the difference between Slovakians and Slovenians and considered Czechs exotic unknowns. The Kurds might as well have been Martians. So it was difficult for the Kurds to get any attention at all, let alone sustain consideration of their needs from the Western powers. But back to the war, the Ottomans decided to wipe out the Armenians on the shaky grounds that they were aiding the Russian invasion. The Ottomans rallied the Kurds to help them drive out the Armenians, telling them that the Armenian and Russian Christians planned to slaughter all Muslims. What the Kurds didn't know was that the Ottomans also intended to remove the Kurds from their homeland just as soon as the Armenians were taken care of. Plans were in place to deport the Kurds to western Anatolia and forcibly integrate them with the Turkish community. Had the war not ended when it did, the Kurds would have been ethnically cleansed right alongside the Armenians. However, the Russian invasion was repelled. The war ended before the Kurds could be displaced. The Armenian genocide received significant attention in the Western press and drew attention to the region. Allied diplomats who had never heard of either Armenians or Kurds before 1914 had at least read their names in official reports. When the shooting stopped and the war ended, the Ottoman Empire was gone. In fact, I'm just going to call them Turks from now on because Turkey was all that remained. Sultan Mehmed VI still occupied his palace in Istanbul, but Allied ships now crowded the harbor. Remember how upset the Germans were at what they considered their unfair, unjust treatment by the Allies? Compared to what the Allies were about to do to the Ottoman Empire, Germany had nothing to complain about. The Allies had all of the power here, especially the British, that it all turned into such a cluster- F was totally self-inflicted because everything immediately went totally catastrophically wrong. And the reason is this, it is extremely easy to give away something you don't own. I can easily promise each and every one of you that when I win a million dollars in the lottery, I will give it straight to you. As I don't even buy lottery tickets, there's not much chance that you will all show up at my door demanding your million. This is essentially what Britain did during the war. A lot of different people really wanted chunks of the former Ottoman Empire, a lot of people that Britain really needed on their side. And it was easy to promise all of these people whatever they wanted. The problem started when these different people began to realize the same lands had been promised multiple times over. So to whom had the British promised what? First, they signed a treaty with France that divided the entire Ottoman Empire between the two of them. The treaty granted the French southeastern Turkey, northern Iraq, Syria, and Lebanon. The British would get Palestine, Jordan, and southern Iraq. At the same time, the British promised all of the Arab-inhabited regions independence. Simultaneously, the British also promised the Jews a homeland in Palestine. We'll talk more about this in a minute. So if you are keeping score at home, you will notice that four separate powers, the British, the French, the Arabs, and the Jews, are counting on holding the exact same territory. But we're not done. The Allies also promised the Armenians an independent Armenia in recompense for their brutal treatment, and the Kurds an independent, or at least autonomously governed, Kurdistan. That left the Turks holding the Turkish heartland in Anatolia, which of course would remain Turkish because Wilsonian principles of self-determination applied to the Turks as well as to anyone else. Just kidding. The French and the British wanted control, or at least influence, in Anatolia. Also in play were the Greeks and Italians. Now, what was going on with those two? Backing up a bit, the Italians only joined the Allies in the Great War after lengthy negotiations with both sides. They were frankly, openly, unabashedly mercenary about it. Italy was not fighting for the greater good or to protect democracy or to end all wars. They wanted land and power. Among the land they claimed was Anatolia, on the grounds that, and I am not making this up, that Turkey had been part of the Roman Empire. Yes, the Roman Empire. Greece also joined the war on the side of the Allies, although only under massive French and British pressure. In exchange, the Allies promised Greece significant territory in Anatolia. The Greek claim had more going for it than the Italian. A sizable Greek population had lived in western Turkey for centuries But Greece didn't content itself with pointing to these large established communities. Greece also spoke eloquently and at length about how all of Turkey had once been ruled by Greece from the time of Alexander the Great. British diplomats, all of whom studied ancient Greek history in school, found this incredibly compelling. I suspect some of them went around quoting Homer in the original ancient Greek, but I can't prove it. So that's where things stood at the start of the peace conference in January 1919. A whole bunch of people have just arrived at Britain's door demanding what they were promised and are suddenly realizing what the Brits have done. The Brits are talking as fast as they can while trying to inch their way backwards. And no one is paying any attention to the Turks who are just trying to keep the lights on. Now, this is the bit where chronology really breaks down, because everything I'm about to tell you happened at exactly the same time. So I'm just going to take it region by region. Let's start in the south and work our way north. First, Hussein bin Ali, the Sharif of Mecca, secured his rule of the western portion of the Arabian Peninsula. He actually, mostly, got what the British had promised, an independent Arab state under his control. Westerners didn't argue about it because they didn't see any value in the desert. It is relevant to note that oil wouldn't be discovered in the Arabian Peninsula until 1938. Moving north along the Mediterranean, we reach Palestine. Brace yourselves, we're going to talk about Zionism. We've spent a lot of time talking about nationalism, and European Jews were among those influenced by the movement in the late 19th century. The problem, of course, was that Jews had no homeland on which to pin their nationalist goals. Many argued that no ethnic group was in greater need of a land to call their own, a place where Jews would be safe and their interests protected. Jews were widely persecuted across Europe and had been since the Dark Ages. We tend to associate anti-Semitism with the 1930s and the Nazis, but it's important to remember that hostility toward the Jews ran deep in European culture. As the idea of a Jewish homeland took root, various locations for this homeland were proposed, including Uganda and Argentina, and wouldn't that have been interesting? Zionists, however, argued for a Jewish state in the ancestral home of the Jews in Palestine, Tens of thousands of Jews adopted the Zionist cause, and by 1919, about 76,000 Jews had immigrated to Palestine, creating a small but very active community. The Zionist cause was helped immensely when the British Foreign Secretary Arthur Balfour issued the Balfour Declaration in 1917. This was a statement of official British support for the creation of a Jewish homeland in Palestine. Balfour had become convinced of the Zionist cause through long discussions with Zionist leader Haim Weizmann, himself a fascinating figure. He was a Russian-born, German-educated Ph.D. chemist who taught at the University of Manchester and became a leader of the Zionist movement in England. Weitzman met Balfour because Balfour represented Manchester in Parliament. According to a perhaps apocryphal story, Balfour tried to convince Weitzman that the Jews should establish a homeland in Uganda, which was then a British colony. I don't know if the Ugandans had been consulted on this point, but really, is it likely? The story goes that Weitzman asked Balfour, would you give up London to live in Saskatchewan? Balfour replied, of course not, the English had always lived in London. Weitzman replied, yes, and we lived in Jerusalem when London was still a marsh. Lest you think Balfour was motivated by purely unselfish motives, it is relevant to point out that the British hoped backing Zionism would boost support of the Allied cause in the war among Jews in the United States and Russia. Anyway, here's what the Balfour Declaration actually said, quote, his Majesty's government view with favor the establishment in Palestine of a national home for the Jewish people and will use their best endeavors to facilitate the achievement of this object, it being clearly understood that nothing shall be done which may prejudice the civil and religious rights of existing non-Jewish communities in Palestine or the rights and political status enjoyed by Jews in any other country." You'll notice there's a lot of wiggle room in this statement. The phrase a national home has no meaning in international law and in Palestine isn't what you call specific. Nevertheless, it was a transformative event. This was the first time a major political power expressed support for Zionism. And since the British were actually in control of Palestine, they soon began establishing a legal framework to back up the declaration. Now, this was not a state or even an autonomous region. It was, however, a community with formal status, a level of self-government, and official British protection. It would become known as the British Mandate in Palestine. Mandate is a fancy word for colony that we will discuss more next week. So the Jews were in Palestine with official British backing. And guess what? The locals weren't happy. They considered the land theirs, for which you can hardly blame them. They lived there and had lived there for hundreds and hundreds of years. Certainly no one asked the Palestinians if they wanted their land to become the Jewish homeland and wasn't self-determination supposed to be a thing? Revolts broke out among the Palestinian population, growing in intensity in early 1919 through 1920. Also unhappy were the French and Arab leaders outside of Palestine. The Arabs could point to centuries of rule in the region, and Jerusalem is a holy city for Muslims just as much as it is for Christians and Jews. The French were mostly annoyed that the British were handing out territory without so much as consulting them. To placate the Arabs, the British decided to divide Palestine along the Jordan River, creating two territories where there had been one— On the western Mediterranean side was the British Mandate of Palestine. On the eastern side, they created a new state, a kingdom they called Transjordan. The British really preferred not to rule their colonies directly. That was so expensive. Instead, they liked to install puppet governments under their ultimate control. For Transjordan, they turned to one of the sons of Hussein bin Ali, whom you'll recall was running things in the Arabian Peninsula. Abdullah bin Hussein, brother to the Prince Faisal, who had been running around with Lawrence of Arabia, became the first king of Transjordan. Placating the French was going to be more difficult, and not just over Palestine. The French, remember, had a treaty with England, giving them control over Syria and Lebanon. But in 1919, Syria and Lebanon were occupied by British-backed Arabs, and the Arabs had no intention of handing power over to the French. Instead, they established Faisal as their king. The Syrians had solid grounds for expecting the British to back them up. Faisal was undoubtedly Britain's man. Otherwise, what had been the point of all of those heroics in the desert? Quid pro quo, my friends. Determined to force the issue, Faisal showed up at the Paris Peace Conference with Lawrence of Arabia in tow. They had not been invited and were not welcome. The French tried to convince him to go home because he lacked official standing, then sent him on a lengthy tour of western front battlefields to get him out of the way. Finally, in February, he was allowed to speak to the Supreme Council. Faisal certainly knew how to put on a performance. For the occasion, he dressed in flowing white robes embroidered with gold and wore a scimitar at his side. Faisal spoke in Arabic while Lawrence translated. They informed the council that the Arabs wanted unity and independence and for the Allies to fulfill their promises. The British dithered and fretted and smoked endless cigarettes and drank a great deal of gin, although I have no firm evidence on the last two points, and asked if maybe France could just let this one slide. What did the French need with Syria anyway? Surely they had enough on their plate as it was. The French were fed up with all of this British nonsense and sternly reminded their Anglo-Saxon colleagues that they had a treaty, and the treaty said the French got Syria. It wasn't that the French needed Syria or even particularly wanted it, but they were damned if they were going to let the British just take everything. So with Clemenceau completely unbending and a great deal more to do, the British said in effect to King Faisal, sorry old chap, nothing we can do, and quickly ducked out of the room. A deeply bitter Faisal abdicated. There was a brief but bloody war, and the French took over Syria and Lebanon. Okay, so how are we doing? That's the Arabian Peninsula, Palestine, Transjordan, and Syria. We've still got to cover Mesopotamia and Turkey. First, Mesopotamia. Remember back when John Stewart would give his updates on the Iraq War in the Daily Show's Mesopotamia segment? Well, let's start tonight with our continuing coverage of... Mesopotamia. As you know, we went- I miss that man. Anyway, Mesopotamia it didn't exist as a political entity under the Ottomans. It was three separate Ottoman provinces. These provinces had little in common and absolutely no sense of themselves as a nation. Their loyalty was to their tribe or their religion or their ethnic group. For example, the northern province was largely Kurdish, and you'll recall the Kurds had been promised independence or at least autonomy. There was the suggestion of creating a separate Kurdistan, perhaps overlapping the border with Turkey, perhaps just in northern Iraq. But by then, oil had been discovered in the region. The British wanted those oil wells firmly under their control and not under the authority of an ethnic group no one had even heard of until recently. Who were these Kurdish chaps, and what did the British owe them anyway? If you would like to keep track at home, this will be the first time the Kurds were abandoned by their Western allies. So the British created a new state called Iraq with the stroke of a pen. The people who lived there, now Iraqis, formed fragile alliances out of their fury at their new imperial overlords and promptly revolted. Massive uprisings swept the new country. You'll remember in our previous episode on India that I mentioned the British were frustrated by widespread unrest in the territories they occupied in 1919. They framed the protests in India as part of a global campaign of disruption, likely promoted by the Bolsheviks. Now, we've just discussed two regions of unrest in Palestine and Iraq. And you can see in both cases that the British brought the unrest on themselves by imposing unwelcome governments. So much for that global Bolshevik campaign. Anyway, the British struggled to regain control in Iraq because they lacked the troops that would have been needed for a full-blown occupation. Remember, the British military was demobilizing as fast as it could in early 1919. Indian soldiers brought in from the subcontinent helped, but what really worked was an air campaign. The British brought in the Royal Air Force and began bombing the resistance into submission. It was a harsh and indiscriminate program. The bombers of 1919 weren't what you call precision guided. The British would pick a village where trouble was brewing and just bomb the hell out of it. All of it. Homes, mosques, schools, whatever. Just wipe it out. Thousands of Iraqis died, but the British were pretty pleased with the campaign. It required a fraction of the men needed for a ground assault and was relatively cheap. Winston Churchill, who had managed to fight his way back into office after the debacle of Gallipoli, was so enthusiastic that he proposed applying the technique in Ireland, which was, of course, also in turmoil at this time. His plan was rejected, It was one thing for the RAF to blow up Iraqi villages full of women and children. It was quite another to take out the families of Tipperary and Killarney. Imagine the newspaper headlines. So I guess that was good for Ireland then? As the British regained control of Iraq, they decided it was time to install another puppet government. This would not only relieve the administrative burden, but would also allow them to claim that the country wasn't being ruled by European Christians, but by Muslim Arabs. They picked as the new king of the Kingdom of Iraq, drumroll please, Faisal. Apparently the British believed that if you can rule one Arab country, you can rule any Arab country. Faisal had previously never set foot in Iraq, and he spoke a completely different dialect of Arabic, one that most of his subjects couldn't understand. But the British felt like they owed him one after the whole Syria thing, which had been really awkward and made it difficult to look Lawrence of Arabia in the eye at cocktail parties. So Faisal was crowned king in Baghdad. His coronation was as improvised as the new nation. In the absence of an Iraqi national anthem, the band played God Save the King. Finally, we turn to Turkey. Allied intentions toward the country were clear. It would be divided up. Parceled out and left with only a small core of territory in north central Anatolia. Even that would not be fully independent. The Allied powers would control Turkey's finances, including supervising the national budget, and the army was to be severely restricted. In the Northeast, a new state of Armenia was carved out of Turkish territory. This was to be a colony or mandate as the Allies didn't believe the Armenians were ready to manage their own business without the helping hand of white Western powers. Neither France nor Britain particularly wanted to administer a colony in such an out-of-the-way and unfamiliar place, so they hit upon a scheme to hand it over to the Americans. It was presented as a gift. Everyone else was adding to their emperors in the Middle East, and we wouldn't want you Americans to feel left out, would we? Wilson was never enthusiastic about the idea and emphasized that Congress would have to approve American administration of Armenia. Lloyd George paid no attention to this and crossed Armenia off his list of things to think about. The matter was never a priority for Wilson, and when he returned to the United States for the League of Nations fight, he seemed to forget about it entirely. An independent Kurdistan was established along the border with Syria and Iraq. The exact borders of this state were never particularly clear, nor was anything else about it. Events were happening too fast for the Kurds to shape them, and all the decisions were made too far away. Kurdistan only existed on paper. What to do with the rest of Turkey was hotly contested. The Italians lobbied hard to take over, and Lloyd George, for one, strongly considered it. During the Paris Peace Conference, when Woodrow Wilson expressed fears that the Italians had little experience in ministering foreign territories, Lloyd George replied, the Romans were very good governors of colonies. Yes, 1,700 years ago. I am all in favor of a classical education, but really, Lloyd George... Anyway, the Italians were super pushy and demanding and annoyed the other allies to pieces. Italy was also pushing for other territorial concessions, an issue we will discuss next week, and all of the naked Italian greed infuriated Wilson, Clemenceau, and Lloyd George. They managed to disguise their greed with high rhetoric like civilized people. Then word reached the peace conference that the Italians had decided not to wait on final word from Paris, but were landing Italian troops in Turkey and seizing territory. How to stop them? No allied troops were available to fight the Italians, but they couldn't be allowed to just get away with this. It was at this moment that the Greeks popped up, pointed to their military and offered to help. Clemenceau, Lloyd George, and Wilson were relieved to have the problem taken off their plate. The Greeks marched into Turkey in May 1919. Eventually, they occupied all of eastern and southern Turkey and were advancing steadily to the northeast. So there things stood. The once magnificent Ottoman Empire was reduced to a tiny corner of Anatolia without even the authority to write its own checks and facing imminent conquest by the Greeks. Except, except, nothing rouses nationalist fervor like a bunch of strangers dividing up your homeland. I think we need to pause for a moment to catch our breaths. This is a whirlwind, I know, and scholars have spent entire careers trying to understand any one of the events I have so breezily recounted. So let's have a very brief musical interlude. It's going to be a dance tune, so you can get your heart rate up if you like. Constantinople, no, you can't go back to Constantinople, been a long time gone. Constantinople, why did Constantinople get the works? That's nobody's business but the Turks, Istanbul. Now then, don't you feel better with a little more They Might Be Giants in your life? And don't you think it's worth remembering the true message of this song, that it's nobody's business but the Turks? Because everybody had discounted the Turks. But while the Turks were down, they were not out. Word of the Greek invasion prompted riots, marches, and protests across Turkey. In his palace, the sultan could only weep. But one man was determined to do more than weep. Mustafa Kemal, the hero of Gallipoli. Kamal was in Istanbul when he learned of the Greek invasion. He seemed to recognize immediately that nothing could be done for the capital, which was thoroughly dominated by the Allies. An opportunity presented itself when unrest was reported in central Anatolia, the territory still ostensibly Turkish. Kemal got himself appointed to restore law and order in the region and headed for the city of Samsun on the Black Sea. He arrived on May 19, 1919, a day celebrated in Turkey to this day as the beginning of the Turkish War of Independence. Kamal took his time. He gathered like-minded officers and leaders of nationalist movements. He established alliances and built networks. Little word of his movements leaked out. In Paris, the Allies continued merrily dividing up Turkish territory, completely unaware of what was happening on the ground. While Kamal gets his ducks in a row, I want to take one brief look at how the carving up of the Ottoman Empire was received outside of the region. One of the biggest anxieties in the wider world was what would happen to the caliphate. Remember, we talked about this at the beginning of the episode. The Ottoman Sultan was also the leader of the caliphate, the global Islamic community. The concept of the caliphate had more power than the caliphate itself. It gave a sense of unity to Muslims around the world. The thought of European Christians dismantling the caliphate was horrifying to millions of Muslims, especially in India. Indian Muslims took up the cause. They argued that if the British eliminated the caliphate, it would be a deep insult to Islam. They made it clear to their British leaders that the Indian Muslim community would consider it a monstrous betrayal. Among those who adopted the cause of the caliphate was Mohandas Gandhi, especially in the months after Amritsar. Gandhi was eager to form close bonds between the Hindu and Muslim communities in India. The British had always gone for a divide-and-conquer approach, and Gandhi recognized that the one thing that would really scare the British would be the two religions working together. Gandhi spent a significant amount of time in late 1919 and 1920 touring India alongside Muslim leaders and advocating for Indian-wide support of the caliphate. At the same time, he was urging Indian independence. It's a good reminder that everything is always happening at the same time. Also happening at the same time was Woodrow Wilson's failed campaign for the League of Nations and his stroke. Forgotten in the muddle was the proposed American mandate in Armenia. The British persisted in thinking that the Americans would accept the mandate eventually and kept delaying final decisions on the borders of Turkey. This held up a final treaty on the fate of Turkey and kept the whole situation dangerously fluid through 1919 and into 1920. It wasn't until Wilson achieved partial recovery from his stroke in May 1920 that he presented a proposal for American administration of Armenia to the Senate. You can imagine that that went over well. The Senate rejected it a week later, and that was the end of that. Disappointed, the British organized an international conference and forced the Sultan to sign the Treaty of Sevres in August 1920. This treaty set down in paper all of the decisions that had been made in the last year, and the British were rather proud of it, if a little bitter about the American thing. But it turned out the Treaty of Sevres wasn't worth the paper it was printed on. Mustafa Kemal completely rejected it, and within a year it would be an irrelevance. So what changed? For one thing, the Russians were back in the game. By 1921, the Bolsheviks had mostly dealt with the various whites, greens, blacks, and Czechoslovakians that had troubled them. Communist authority was secure, and Lenin could be looking to Russian border territories. When he turned his eye on the Caucasus, he didn't like what he saw. The Armenians were trying to secure their own state and the Russians didn't like that. The Russians marched into Armenia. Mustafa Kemal watched the Russian actions closely and made a decision. He was no Bolshevik. He had no sympathy for the communists. But as we have seen again and again, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Kemal made a deal. In exchange for Russian gold and weapons, his troops cooperated with the Russians in the final defeat of Armenia. Less than a month after the Treaty of Sevra guaranteed the rights of an independent Armenia, the Russians and the Turks wiped it off the map. This effectively ended hopes for the Kurds as well, and any allies that might have once defended the Kurds were long gone. If you are keeping track at home, this is the second time the Allies betrayed their Kurdish allies. With his northeastern border secure, Kemal could begin moving against the Greek invaders. The Greeks were hated in Turkey, and not only because they were Christian invaders, their rule had been brutal and filled with atrocities that would now be considered war crimes. Kemal's armies began their advance against the Greeks in August 1922. Kemal's orders were simple. He said, "'Soldiers, your goal is the Mediterranean.'" Turkish troops pushed south and west, driving the Greeks before them. Their target was Smyrna, the capital of the Greek government in Turkey. In the fall of 1922, the city was mobbed by Greek refugees fleeing before the Turkish army, more than a million men, women, and children carrying everything they owned and desperate to escape." We have firsthand reports of the Greek exodus from Turkey from an American journalist reporting for the Toronto Daily Star, one Ernest Hemingway. You may have heard of him. Hemingway described, quote, 20 miles of carts drawn by cows, bullocks and muddy flanked water buffalo with exhausted, staggering men, women and children, blankets over their heads, walking blindingly along in the rain besides their worldly goods. All day long, I have been passing them, dirty, tired, unshaven, wind-bitten soldiers hiking along the trails across the brown, rolling, barren Thrace countryside. Greece frantically tried to organize an evacuation. Turkish forces moved into Smyrna on September 9, 1922, and Kemal issued an order banning attacks on non-combatants. Nevertheless, atrocities were undoubtedly committed, and on September 13, fire broke out in the city. Different sides argue to this day how the fires began. Tens of thousands, possibly even hundreds of thousands, of refugees crowded onto the waterfront trying to escape. Greek, French, and British ships were overwhelmed by desperate people with nowhere to go. Smyrna was left a smoking ruin. Only a thin sliver of land surrounding Istanbul remained in Greek hands. The Greeks begged the Allies for military help. Lloyd George decided British honor demanded that they send troops to Turkey to back up the Greeks. He demanded a call-up of both British and Dominion troops. The Dominion, you might recall from our discussion of Ireland, was made up of the former British colonies, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, and South Africa. Lloyd George's cry for the honor and glory of Great Britain was met with deafening silence. The British public didn't want a war. The British military didn't want a war. The Canadians, Australians, and South Africans didn't want a war. This was shocking. In the past, the Dominion States had always jumped to attention when Britain called. It was a clear sign that Britain's relationship with even its closest colonies had shifted during the war. Support for Lloyd George was rapidly disintegrating. It collapsed entirely in the most British way possible at a closed meeting of the Conservative Party held at a private gentleman's club in London. When you think gentlemen's club, think Agatha Christie or Downton Abbey, not American strip joint. Big leather armchairs, obsequious servants bringing gin, paintings of hunting dogs, that sort of thing. In this very British setting, Lloyd George lost his position of prime minister and was replaced by a man named, and I am not making this up, Boner Law. Law's attitude toward the situation in Turkey can be summed up in his statement, We cannot alone act as the policeman of the world. History may not repeat itself, but it does rhyme. So the Greeks fled Turkey. About 1.5 million refugees crowded into Greek cities. The Greek economy collapsed under the burden. By the summer of 1923, the reality on the ground was confirmed in a new treaty, the Treaty of Lausanne, which replaced the Treaty of Sevres. Mustafa Kemal announced the creation of the Turkish Republic, a state he insisted should be secular rather than religious in foundation. It was Kemal, then, who actually ended the caliphate. He established Ankara in central Anatolia as his capital. Ankara had been his base during the War of Independence. And in 1938, Kemal became officially known as Ataturk, meaning father of the Turks. He is deeply revered to this day among the Turkish people. And there we are. By the end of 1923, the region had achieved a sort of fragile stability. Turkey had kicked out all of its enemies and eliminated the threat of an independent Armenia and Kurdistan. The French were finding Syria expensive and difficult to rule, but they were by God going to rule it, whether anyone liked it or not. The British were finding the competing claims of the Jews and the Palestinians impossible to balance. King Faisal was finding the competing claims of all of the various Iraqis and the British equally impossible to balance. Trans-Jordan, eventually renamed just Jordan, and the Arabian Peninsula were dealing with local conflicts. In fact, King Hussein was actually overthrown by Ibn Saud, a competing Arab ruler, in 1926, leading to the creation of today's Saudi Arabia. But that is probably one detail too many, and that fact will not be on the quiz. What it looks like when you take a step back is a bunch of deeply irresponsible, high-handed meddling. How dare the British, and the rest of the Allies, but mostly the British, think they could just play with people's lives like that? These were real people. I gave you a little bit of detail about the Greeks fleeing Smyrna, but scenes like that played out across the region, not to mention the RAF bombing entire Iraqi villages into submission. What does it take to lose all empathy all understanding that the dots on the map represent real people who bleed and die, or bleed and live and want revenge. We have looked at many events from 1919 and the surrounding years that had lasting consequences, and we will look at more in the weeks to come. But many historians and international experts have agreed that the most far-reaching decisions were those made regarding the Ottoman Empire. We are still living with those consequences. People living in those places woke up today to the sound of shelling. On every journey outside of their homes, they scan the street for IEDs and go through military checkpoints. Often they see no choice but to put their children on rafts and flee for their lives. As I record this in November 2019, the news is full of stories about the withdrawal of American forces from Kurdish-controlled regions of northern Syria. The Kurds have become far more organized over the last century and far more intent on establishing an independent Kurdistan. They supported American troops in Iraq, particularly in the fight against ISIS, in part because this entitled them to American protection. But now the Americans have ridden off into the sunset, leaving the Kurds to the wrath of the Turks and the Syrians. That's yet another betrayal of the Kurds by their Western allies. Speaking of ISIS, only two weeks ago, as I record this, American special forces cornered the leader of ISIS, Abu Bakr al Baghdadi. Al Baghdadi killed himself rather than surrender. We all know ISIS is a terrorist organization, but less clear in the West is the organization's primary goal, recreating the caliphate, which ended with the Ottoman Empire. These are just two examples from the last few weeks of conflicts in the Middle East that can be traced directly back to decisions made by the Allies in 1919 and immediately after. Decisions had to be made in the former Ottoman Empire in 1919. Even with the best of intentions, these decisions would have been difficult. But the British were outsiders, and they weren't acting with the best of intentions. They were acting out of self-interest, greed, and ignorance. The people of the Middle East are still paying for their mistakes. Thank you so much for listening to the year that was. We covered an enormous amount of ground this week, far more than usual. And I hope your head isn't in a complete whirl. If you have questions, check out the Facebook page and ask them there. I would love to discuss this further and clear up any points that have left you confused. Visit www.theyearthatwaspodcast.com for maps, 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 as well as photos and links to sources and other interesting bits and bobs. Make sure you have subscribed so you never miss an episode. And if you're enjoying the show, I invite you and really ask you to leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Next week, we're going to do kind of a wrap up on colonies and mandates that's going to take us all over the world. It's fascinating stuff, and I hope that you join me. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Elizabeth Lunday, and this is The Year That Was, 1919.